as I was praying about where to share, I mean, certainly the Scripture is so full. It is so loaded with things that are going to be beneficial for us. And uh, when I had a sense that the section for this morning should be Galatians 6, and I, I looked at it, I was like, man, I don't know how needful this is, you know, like uh, in a, a practical sense, you know, like how uh, there are so many things that as a body of believers may be pertinent for us, uh, and is this really the thing that we should emphasize? And I, I had a strong sense that we should. Um, one of the things that I've been impressed with this fellowship since we've been here is the love that you have one for another and the maturity that all of you have. It, it is just, it's such a, a blessing. Um, it doesn't seem as though there's um, some of the infighting that is present in other fellowships. And it just really is um, such a pleasure to be here with all of you. So that's the reason why starting off in Galatians 6 was kind of like, oh, all right. <laughs> you know, like if this is, if this is where we should go. Um, however, I, I do find in my role as an administrator at a Christian school that this is extremely necessary. Uh, and sometimes it's important for me to be reminded of the, the proper way to deal with conflict uh, and conflict amongst ourselves. So let's, uh, let's pray over the, the reading of God's Word. Our Father, thank You for Your Word and the, the practicality of it. You've given us truly all things that pertain to life and godliness. And as we examine Your Word in an immensely practical chapter, a uh, couple of chapters this morning, I pray that you would be glorified. Lord, that you would draw us closer as we remember these things that we've already heard, we've already been made aware of. But Lord, that, uh, that we would apply them as well and uh, that we would pass them on faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> really what I want to talk about this morning is the heart of God for humanity and specifically for his church uh, and i think sometimes there are different perspectives on the heart of god and that it is fruitful for us to stop and really take stock uh, from the words of christ uh, and bearing in mind that all scripture is given by inspiration of god so here, starting off, Galatians 6, in verse 1, it says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, consider, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And I want to start off there, because there is a the possibility that a man may be overtaken in any trespass and that it is the role of the uh, the body of Christ to deal with that. It says here plainly, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, 
restore. There's an imperative there. Not uh, condemn, not destroy, not, aha, I knew it. (laughs) Restore. Uh, Restore such a one. How? You know, uh, bludgeoning, uh, public humiliation. It says restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Knowing that we are sin-prone people who are interacting with sin-prone people and uh, that there is a possibility for any one of us to be um, caught by the world, the flesh, or the devil. And so in that sensitivity and in that self-knowledge to you know, confront for the purpose of restoration each other. It says this as well. Uh, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. There is a, a there is a burden that comes along with one who is overtaken in any trespass. You know, there's a burden for the body of Christ because it's not operating the way that it should. We should be dwelling together in unity of one accord, right? Or in one accord. Uh, as it said in Acts. And yet there are things that will come that will threaten that unity. Again, whether it's self-imposed or whether it's externally inflamed, uh, nevertheless, there are going to be times when we are going to be at odds with each other. And so it's important for us to realize it is our role, it is our job to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, what is the law of Christ, you recall? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So important. You know, uh, not get revenge, not uh, fight for what's yours, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Let's turn over to Matthew 18, because I think our Lord really... um, and I'm conscientious of the, the time that we have. Uh, so I'm not going to necessarily spend a lot of time in uh, a lot of um, commentary on Matthew 18, only in so much as want to establish God's heart when it comes to one who is overtaken in any trespass. Because, again, I think sometimes we have the sense that one who's overtaken in any trespass, um, you know, some, somehow they need to go through the, our purgatory, right? Our own, uh, you know, like uh, maybe if you suffered enough, then you can come back and, uh, and fellowship with us. Or maybe you can then be restored uh, if, if you've been burned enough. Uh, and yet, Matthew 18, 1, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name 
receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And so here we have uh, quite a bit on what is greatness in the kingdom of heaven. There is a humility. Uh, and all of us have seen the dependency of little children. We all have known little children in the way that they would depend on an adult or they would depend on us. Or perhaps as we were children and we had to depend on someone else. Uh, and there were things that uh, they would say, and, and especially before you get to that why stage, when everything is met with the question why, they're very um, accepting of the things that, you know, okay, now it's time to go to bed. And they may not like it, but you're not necessarily immediately met with why. Um, and I think as well, there there is a uh, certain dependency that children, they know that they have. Uh, they know that they don't have the experience or the knowledge of the way this world works. And so they look to adults to kind of figure things out. Uh, how should I be acting? We lose that over time, don't we? We lose that humility. We lose that teachability. Maybe I should just speak for myself. Um, but there is kind of a pride that builds up. And so our Lord exhorts, uh, unless you're converted and become as little children, not little children in that you don't know how to conduct yourself or certain other things of that nature, but as little children who will be dependent particularly on their father, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, he's talking to a society that believes that if they can um, observe the law to the greatest degree possible, that somehow they'll be justified. And we know from the clear teaching of Scripture that the law is essentially a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. The purpose of the law was not so that people could observe the law and thereby be justified or feel justified. It's not as though the Day of Atonement, which has just come and gone in Israel, you know, is observed and taking a day to really feel bad about yourself or sorry about your sins is all that's required. Recall that the Day of Atonement also was supposed to be um, observed with the sacrifice of the Lamb. You know, because there's no atonement without the Lamb. 
there's no atonement without the blood. And particularly, there's no atonement without the blood of Christ. However, don't we like to build up a religion unto ourselves? Don't we like to build up, well, if I do this or I do that right, then I'm right with God. And if I blow it, okay, well, maybe if I, again, go through my self-imposed purgatory or somebody else's purgatory, then I will be fit to stand in His presence once more. It says, unless you're converted and become as little children, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, <laughs> he said very clearly in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't say after you've suffered a little while, you know, after you've sweated it out and he's deliberated and, and figured out whether you were worthy or not. Right? It's unconditional. If the condition is this, if we confess our sins and then the the result is He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So He talks about an offensive person here and particularly one who would offend a child. Now I think we can look at it two ways. It's those who would cause offense to someone who is chronologically a child certainly, and would betray that faith, that trust that is put in them. But also I think that it's pertinent to those who would be as little children entering the kingdom of heaven if they would be offended, not like personally offended, but offended in their relationship with Christ, their relationship with God, if there would be anything that would draw them away. He says it would be better for him. Not this is the prescribed, um, you know, way to deal with somebody who has caused offense. But it would be better for them if you just took them right off the coast here, maybe go out past, you know, the, out of the Gulf of Maine, and just take a big old millstone. You guys have seen those. Just tie it right around their neck and just over the edge, so that they don't even have the chance to drown because of the pressure of the sea will make an end of them. That would be better. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come. And I believe that the reason that offenses must come is because there is that flesh. There is that sin nature that is native to all of our hearts. Uh, And so offenses are going to come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. Uh, And I believe this isn't so much to um, Christians, although I suppose if you love your sin more than you love the Lord, and there is a strain in your relationship with the Lord, you know, I mean, maybe beware of that. However, uh, why would we not cut off our hand or our foot if it causes us to sin? Now, again, I don't think that he's saying literally cut off your hand, literally cut off your foot, uh, but there is some um, 
a little bit of hyperbole in that. But if there is something that you feel makes you whole, and yet it is taking you away from the Lord, taking you away from a right relationship with Him, it is better for you to cut that off. You know, the thing about the hand and the foot is it is as wicked as the heart that it's attached to. And it's the attachment to the heart that causes it to be wicked. You know, why, why do we do wicked things? Because it's in our nature, you know, from, from birth. Um, I think that our pride keeps us from cutting off hand or foot. I think sometimes there are things that will lead us into sin that we are too proud to let go. We are too proud to cut it off. Because, I mean, it, <laughs> what happened to your hand? What happened to your foot? We don't want to deal with those kinds of things. We don't want to deal with the appearance to the world around us. Hey, I've got both of my hands and both of my feet. What's wrong with you? You know, hey, I can do X, Y, or Z, and you're telling me you can't? It is better for you to cut off those things and look like that, look lame or maimed to the world, or even in some way feel lame or maimed and enter into heaven, than to continue on and just, you know, have it jeopardize your relationship with the Lord or the possibility of relationship. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. You know, because again, where does sin start? It starts in the heart. You know, um, our Lord made that awfully clear in the Sermon on the Mount when he said that if you look on a woman to lust after her, it's like you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. Uh, Also, in the Ten Commandments, we understand that thou shalt not covet. That's a sin that's committed in the heart. So, um, the things that would stir up your heart or would steer away your heart, uh, it's better to get rid of those things. Now, again, do I think that means we need to be walking around gouging out eyes? No, because they're still connected to that, or, or it's the, the wicked heart that needs to be dealt with. Not the eye, not the hand, not the foot. He says, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. You know, we are to be conscious of the fact that we live in community and we live in community with those who have been redeemed. And we live in community with children as well. He takes it very seriously if one is to be um, offended or moved away from their relationship with him. He says that their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Fellow fathers, when we hear the cry of our children as if they are being tormented by an outside force, what does that do to your heart? Do you take that like, oh well, I guess... Are you passive about that kind of uh, a cry? 
Do you understand that heart, that aspect of your anger, your indignation, comes from our Father? Do you know He feels that same kind of intensity for His children as well? Their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. But then look at this. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. So if one of these little ones would be moved away, what is God's heart in that? Not to cast them off forever, but His heart is to save them. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray? Does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So, the Lord makes it very clear that His heart is for reconciliation. You know what being offended or, or what sin does between us and the Lord, right? It causes a division. When somebody sins against us, sometimes we feel a division as well, and we would just assume, depending on your personality type, I suppose, we may just assume, write them off forever. Like, I'm done with you. <clears throat> and this is not his heart. His heart is the one who has wandered astray that he seeks for that one. And it says, go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying. You know, I mean, all of us having lived in Maine and uh, presumably having hiked the mountains realizes that's not an easy task. If you were to look for one little lamb, uh, you know, over Baxter State Park, probably would take a long time. This is talking about significant effort. What is our heart toward brothers and sisters who have uh, strayed away? Do we have the same kind of zeal for them that the Lord has for, or de you know, points out that a shepherd would have for a missing sheep? Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So we have here somewhat of a, a formula for restoration. And I think that this is qualified by the beginning part of Matthew 18. Because we sometimes will have this sense of, if they have sinned against me, either I'll recede, which I think maybe is more likely for a lot of us, 
if they've sinned against me, well, I'll recede and maybe act like it doesn't bother me, even though it really does, even though there is a division between us now. Or we want to go tell them about themselves. We want to confront, right? Uh, And we want to set them straight. And we want to kind of uh, get our own, if you will. I think that looking at this idea of the lost sheep gives us a perspective of the heart that we should have when we are confronting sin. And also in Galatians 6, you know, uh, the way that we would confront sin is with a humble heart. You know, it is with a heart that's seeking restoration. Not, hey, did you know that you really bothered me when you did this? Now say you're sorry and maybe I'll forgive you. <laughs> you know, sometimes that isn't that our sense. You know, we can get so worked up about our neighbors or maybe we can get so worked up about our brothers and our sisters because of the way that they have sinned against us. And you know what? I'm not saying that there's not um that you're not right. <laughs> I'm not saying that you should recede and just act like No, I wasn't really offended. If in fact you truly were offended, not at all. Matthew 18 is not like, you know, we'll just get over it. You know, like grow up and get over it. That's not Matthew 18. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. But again, it's with that heart for restoration. It's not with that heart for um You know, I just want you to know how terrible you are. (laughs) Which is what we may, you know, like the way we may confront may be for that purpose. No, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. A discreetness. Seeking to heal the wound in the body of Christ. We're all members of one body. And so when one member suffers, we all suffer. Whether it is something that we're conscious of or not. We all suffer. If there is something that you have against somebody else and it causes you to recede from that relationship with them, that causes you to recede in your unity with the body of Christ, that also limits the effectiveness of the body of Christ because there's some division between us now. Um, I think this is true between different uh, bodies within uh, the body of Christ, different fellowships as well. You know, there may be ways in which we are wounded by brothers and sisters who are part of a different fellowship, and at least we have our own. At least we have the safety of this one, and we all pretty well get along, um, you know, the, the vast majority of the time. This is a brother, it doesn't say which denomination doesn't say that there is a denomination. If a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. And that's the goal. Not if he's like, oh man, I've really, you know, I've got to repent in sackcloth and ashes. And, you know, if he's like, man, I'm really sorry. You know, and uh, if you, if he hears you, Gain him back as a brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more. 
that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Again, with what heart? Is this a lynch mob that you're calling? No. It's still with that humility. It's still with that desire to repair the breach in the body of Christ. That wound in the body of Christ. I mean, certainly, uh, if a, a part of the body, like the hand or the foot, is severed off, the body can continue on, the body can live. However, the body is not as effective, is it, without the use of the hand or the foot. And so, we may feel as though well, I can live having severed that part of the body of Christ from myself. Maybe you can live. However, what kind of effectiveness within the body of Christ, is jeopardized because of that. If he refuses to hear the two or three people who are like, brother, you know, you really have to understand when you did this, you know, like you were sinning against them and, and trying to win them in love and humility. Uh, there's a possibility that even that kind of a plea will not be heard. Well, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. And so <clears throat> there have been a couple of different ways that this has been interpreted. One is that it would be tell it to the church in a formal way, in a public way. Another is that uh, you would tell it to church leadership in particular. And so that the authority, either within the body of Christ or within the leadership in the body of Christ, would add weight to that kind of a, you know, I mean, this really is a serious thing that's causing division within the body of Christ. And it needs to be repaired. And it says this, <laughs> and if he refuses to hear them, okay, if he refuses even to hear the church, let him to be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Okay, good. This is the moment we were waiting for when we can finally write them off, right? When we can finally say, there, they're kicked out of the church. That's it. How do we treat, how are we as New Testament believers supposed to treat heathens and tax collectors? We're supposed to share the gospel with them. We are supposed to share the love of Christ with them. We're still supposed to try to win them to Christ. Our responsibility of love is not over even if they have rejected the confrontation, the loving and humble confrontation, even of church leadership. We know that there's not fellowship. If somebody is holding on to sin that hard, that they cannot humble themselves and confess their sins and be forgiven. It's not for my original claim against that brother or sister that I keep going through this process it's because sin separates us from God. And a sin against a brother is a sin against the Lord, and it separates us from God. And it needs to be dealt with. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And it's in this context as well. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. In what way? For restoration, seeking restoration of a brother who has sinned. Right? 
for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. And we think about this as, well, it doesn't matter how big the congregation is. And that's true. The Lord is here in our midst as much as he is in any mega church. Uh, Let me say solid mega church. Um, However, this is talking particularly about pursuing a brother or sister who is strayed. We, we should be praying. We should be asking the Lord for restoration, even for those. It says this in verse 21. <laughs> I love Peter. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? He thought he was being magnanimous. And you can't blame him because earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, you see that Christ says, you know, like up to seven times. He's saying that as this is absurd, you know, like you're probably not going to be dealing with somebody who's doing the exact same thing over and over again. But, okay, let's just say the complete, the perfect number of times that somebody would be sinning against you, you should forgive them. You should always be ready to forgive. So Peter walks up and I'll as if, okay, uh, I've got my checklist ready. I've got the names of the people who may sin against me. All right, they've sinned against me once. I'll still forgive them. Twice, three times, four times, five times. Aren't I gracious? Aren't I loving? Six times, seven times. That's the magic number. I don't need to forgive you anymore. I'm done with you. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you, up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. He's making this ridiculous. How many, you know, like, you don't even have time to sin against somebody 490 times in the exact same way in a day. And he's saying an an absurd amount, an, an unreasonable amount of times, if they come back to you, why is it? Why would he say that? He goes on to kind of illustrate that in 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But he was not able to pay. Uh, as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. So this is kind of their version of garnishing your wages. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave the debt. This is an unreasonable amount that he owes. You know, 10,000 talents is more than you could pay back in, in a lifetime. This is the reason that Christ tells this this way. It's just a, a terrible amount of debt to be in that you can never come back from. And this master hears the servant say, will you forgive me? And he is ready to forgive him everything. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Well, that's a hundred days wages. It's not insignificant. And he laid hands on him, 
took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Doesn't that sound familiar? Wasn't somebody just using that same line? And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. This is not the way that he was treated. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to, do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brothers his trespasses. He makes it real right there, doesn't he? I think the problem, I think the, the reason for unforgiveness, the problem is we have a lack of perspective. Because we can be so focused on the offense that the other person has offended us. And they, they you know, oh man, I could tell you how they burned me and oh, everybody would agree. They're just the, the most rotten person. And he, the Lord Jesus puts it in the perspective of, yeah, but how have you offended me? And if I'm willing to forgive you, again, First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. How can we, who are owed a lesser debt than the debt that was forgiven us, hold from somebody who is asking for forgiveness, you know, oh no, 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 you need to suffer. You haven't suffered enough yet. You see the heart that the Lord has for the, the unity of the church? It is seriously important to Him. So when you're tempted to become bitter because people have given you a reason to be bitter because people have burned you and when you have confronted that person and you've done it in love and you have taken that one or two other people with you so that two or three people gathering together in his name like brother sister don't you know you're dividing the body of Christ, don't you? You've got to have a heart for the body of Christ in this whole thing. This is not a self-focused, you know, like, okay, I'm getting my pound of flesh now. That's not what Matthew 18 is about. It is having a reverence for the unity of the body of Christ. How can we hold anything against somebody else when we've been forgiven so much? And how can we not break when we're confronted with our sin, the way that we have sinned against somebody else as the body of Christ, realizing that we've done damage? How could we be unrepentant, that person? Because, 
We all like to think we would be the person confronting and not the person confronted in Matthew 18. But I'll tell you, standing here, I have been the confronted, and rightly so. When we are the confronted, we can't, oh no, no way, no. It's going to look like I'm walking around maimed. It's going to look like, you know, I mean, and especially for us as men, I think. You can't show weakness. You don't want to show weakness. And we may feel as though backing down on something that we have said or something that we have done may be a display of weakness. When in fact, it is keeping our hand or our foot in the trap with an unwillingness for the, the unity. And the, the secret is, the, the thing is, if we would cut off the hand or the foot that cause, causes us to sin, there would actually be greater wholeness than holding on to it. There would be greater dignity than if we continued on as if, I have nothing to apologize for. You know, I, I have nothing that I need to, you know, make right with anyone. So, whichever side of the equation we're on, whether we are the one confronted or whether we are the one confronting, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, that would be somebody who has the mind of Christ, somebody who is indwelled with the Holy Spirit. Chief fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. You who are spiritual, you who have that love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, meekness, self-control. Restore such a one. Don't cut off. Don't excommunicate. And don't be quick to that. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Considering yourself. Consider the debt that you owed that was forgiven as you are going after somebody who is separated from the body of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone, and this I think goes perfectly with it, uh, back in Galatians 6, looking at verse 3, for if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Don't we build ourselves up? I mean, we are the center of our own little universe, are we not? Until we come to Christ and we realize, no, we are a part of His universe. And He's Lord of all. That's part of that submission to His Lordship. If anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. I think this fits in very perfectly as well. You know, whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. We are in a season of reaping, are we not? We are in a season of harvest right now. And... There, there is great abundance that comes to us at this time of the year in New England. I think the same is true when it comes to sin or when it comes to forgiveness. Whatever man sows, that will he also reap. 
For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Don't lose heart, brothers and sisters, when you're going through this heart. You know, confrontation is not a pleasurable thing. It's not a thing that we... And for the purpose of reunification. If we're exacting revenge, we may feel as though there is some measure of satisfaction in that. But it's hard work to actually put things at the foot of the cross. To actually forgive our brother or our sister from our heart and just leave those things on Christ's account. Let us not grow weary while doing good. We're looking forward to something. We are looking forward to a day that's going to change everything. That's going to clarify every position. It's going to clarify everything. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. And then this as well, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we should be doing good to everyone. That's just, again, part of our new nature is to want to do good to other people, but especially to our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those who are of the household of faith. Don't take your brothers and sisters for granted. Do good as often as you can to them.